0: Hello and welcome to episode 35 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's our life force, Shane Beeps.
1: Man, Stan, how long has it been since we've all been recording this? It feels like forever, but it's probably been like, what, two weeks? It's only been three it's been since we were in denver a couple of
2: weeks ago so. that's still ridiculous man it's good to see all y'all i gotta say yeah i mean the 20 minutes of audio haggling really didn't put a dent in me wanting to hang out with you guys at all so <laughs> <laughs> there's I'll not give a you joke you for audio
0: <laughs> if you give me five audio yeah that's what you mean by haggling right
2: i'll give you three dbs for one hertz
0: <laughs> also with us here in chicago the singular dave how Hey, Dave.
2: Before we get going, I have a turn zero action.
0: Last but not least, it's the combustible. Zach, call hand. I am back. I am highly volatile, and I am ready for some action. On this week's episode, we break down the results of GP Minneapolis. Then we dive into one of Magic's most prominent cycles. It's Leyline Week. Finally, we wind down with a check in on our recent experiences testing decks, new and old. But first, some housekeeping. Thanks, as always, to our newest patrons. Huge appreciation to Rich T., Granger H., Stephanie P., Will C., Dominic R., Dom M., and David S. Also, thanks to Chris for their awesome review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate you all very much.
1: Yeah, This is like one of our biggest weeks on Patreon since we got things going a few months ago. It's just, I mean... It's consistently amazing to me that so many of you really want to support the show, support what we're doing. Um, it's truly appreciated. Um, wanted to let everyone know we have nearly every package out for people who are expecting stickers, pins, signed dive downs, things like that. So uh, if you don't have those already, you should this week. And there's a
2: few outstanding that I'm going to get to this week. So thanks again to everybody. And we're just about done with the playmat design. So those of you who are in that tier on our patreon or interested in getting that tier we should have some action there soon speaking of action
0: let's jump over to zach at the news desk
2: what happened this weekend in modern
0: magic
3: yeah there was gp minneapolis which happened over the weekend which had such a diverse top eight that included decks like turbo hedron crab zombie aggro vegvine dredge ultra dimension mill (laughs)
0: <laughs> wow, these are really new, fresh archetypes that I haven't even heard of before.
3: Oh, wait a minute. No, that was Tom Ross's tweet, and those are all, in fact, Hogak decks.
2: Oh my gosh. Wait, Tom, Tom Ross is now hopping on Twitter saying that the top eight wasn't <laughs> diverse enough with the deck, the card that he helped design?
3: <laughs> I, I believe it was more to poke fun of the very dire situation we find ourselves in as opposed to... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, you well, I see. His,
1: his, his potential, maybe playable commander card
2: has <laughs> been doing some work in modern magic. And that's right. It's G.P. Hogak, everybody. G.P. Hogak, part the first, I think people. Yeah, some people the are thing calling that
1: everyone, it. the thing that everyone's been afraid of has come to fruition,
2: and we'll get to that. So the first thing that we got as far as results over Twitter from GP Minneapolis... You know, given that the GP had no coverage, so it was a little bit like uh, social media archaeology, trying to figure out what was going on <laughs> and making uh, making sure that uh, stuff was real versus uh, noise, essentially on Twitter. But anyway, the first kind of piece of information that we got was that the day one undefeated deck lists uh, really were kind of a ray of sunshine because the three decks that went 9-0 on day one were Humans, Burn, and um, blue white Control. And the blue white Control deck was piloted by Gregory Orange, uh, notable control player. I think I went to bed Saturday night thinking, you know what? Maybe everything's going to be okay. <laughs> Maybe it won't be a problem. And then woke up on Sunday morning, started to look around on Twitter again and try to figure some things out. And...
3: Yeah, I mean, it goes from three different archetypes right you have mid-range aggro and control well represented and hey healthy meta and then that is not what the reality is
2: yeah i feel like this was a little similar to one of the gps that we watched back when is it phoenix was beginning its ascension where we were <laughs> kind of like oh is it phoenix didn't go undefeated and then the next day it was 30 percent of the day two meta <laughs> well um, i'm gonna let one of you guys read through the actual day two meta but once we got a hold of that late in the day on sunday uh it was kind of eye-opening
1: yeah, so the day two metagame is a lot of the decks we've been talking about recently, but Hogak is taking up 19.3% of the, the day two. So that's about what we saw with something like Phoenix, the the top of its powers, you know, 20% metagame. Again, though, this is one of those things, like, I guess, Is It Phoenix, where people are truly prepared for it, yet it's still performing quite well. And also below that, we're starting to see the metagame get tuned to even beat Hogak, so we see Mono Red Phoenix with 17 copies, or about 10 percent. Burn 13 copies, about 8 percent. Tron 8 percent. Jund at 7 percent. Etron at six and a half percent. The Urza Word deck 6 uh, percent. And below that, we have a smattering of decks, you know, 4% and lower. But by and large, we're seeing a lot of, you know, aggressive decks and decks that can potentially go over the top of Hogak or combo
3: around Hogak as well. So seeing the complete and utter infiltration of the meta that we have with this Necropolean Menace, here is the top 16. So we have Justin Poacher on Crab Hogak, which is Hogak featuring Hedron Crab to mill yourself. Two... We have a Seder Wayfinder, Law of the Troll Hogak build. Third, we have Ryan Overturf on Mono Red Prowess, which is a deck that I know that Dave has been playing as well lately.
1: Yeah, Ryan Overturf's been kind of talking up this deck, and it's good for him uh, showing his work here, showing that he can get the job done.
0: Yeah, and this is a version of Mono Red that he's really been tuning himself, and it's different from what we're used to calling Mono Red Phoenix, because this is the deck that cuts all the Phoenix and plays four Bedlam Reveler. We talked about it briefly with Ross on last week's episode as well, and yeah, like here's Ryan Overturf really putting his performance where his writing
2: is. That's the most (laughs) awkward aphorism ever. He really make sure you put your performance where your writing is, young man.
0: Well, I'm referencing his articles on SCG. Yes, of
2: course. I don't think that one's going to end up on a T-shirt anytime soon,
3: though. (laughs) Uh, Next, we have another Seder Wayfinder Hogek deck. Fifth, yet again, another Hedron Crab Hogak deck. Sixth, we have Boros Burn, and this one was going for the Silver Bullet of four Leyland of the Void in the side, or something like Tormat's Crypt, which is Or Rest fast. in Peace, exactly. is that more normal well, one? we heard the discussion that Rest in Peace is maybe a little slow these days, right? Turn two to Exile a Graveyard isn't fast enough.
0: Yeah. Especially not on the draw.
3: Yeah. And seventh, we have Glowspore Shaman Hogak. And for those unfamiliar, I'll quickly go over Glowspore Shaman. So that is a 3-1 for one black and one green. When it enters the battlefield, put the top three cards of your library in your graveyard. You may put a land from your graveyard on top of your library.
1: Yeah, I mean, this just seems like it's another part of the getting, you know, milling creatures package. Like it still had the Cedar Wayfinder, had the Stitcher Supplier, but it added Spore Shaman as well just to get those cards in the graveyard, I guess. Right. Absolutely. And then uh, pulling up the rear of the top eight, we have five color humans in eighth place. Guys, I'm just going to quickly run through eight through nine through 16. So we have Etron Hardened Scales, 11th and 12th. We have Mono Red Phoenix. We have another Hogak, another Mono Red Phoenix, another Hogak. And then in 16th place, Merfolk. So Merfolk, even after Ross dragged a little bit last week, shows up here in 16th place. Um, What I thought was interesting, though, so we have, you know, we have seven Hogak decks in the top 16, right? Almost half the top 16. We have an all Hogak finals. Ugh. What I think is even more interesting, though, is that there's five Burn slash Prowessy type decks. There's the merfolk deck and the Hardened Scales deck. So that's seven decks there that are all really kind of like gotta go fast, want to finish off Hogak or any other opponent quickly, take advantage of kind of the relative blocking lack of blocking ability of many of the hogak decks
2: creatures so you wouldn't put humans in that in that same category a little bit no i
1: I was thinking that as well i mean i was thinking that as well like it it definitely can go fast around it can kind of it can go fast but i think i see the other decks as really just got to go fast and like you know can really
3: merfolk can cast the spreading seas, not interact with
1: them that's 14 of our top 16
3: decks I said this up top when I mentioned the three decks I defeated day one. I think humans is more of a mid range deck, just due to the amount of interaction they have with Kitecell Freebooter and Deputy Detention, so on and so forth. I think that they can go fast, but that is more of a rare draw and a rare mode, as opposed to the grindy play and they normally play.
2: Okay, then then Shane's Shane's point is more that seven were Hogak, and then seven were decks that were trying to be faster than Hogak, basically. Yes. Yeah, that's my that's my contention.
1: So yeah, I mean, that's not great, but it's like, how much more can we really talk about Hogak? You know what I mean? It likely
3: will be banned in a couple weeks. Well, today they announced there would not be an emergency ban before GP Vegas.
2: So I have something I would like to request. In the tweet that announced the player who won this, they referred to the build of the deck with uh, Hedron Crab as Moist Hogak. I would like to emergency ban that name, (laughs) even if we're not going to emergency ban Hogak, okay? Can we just get rid of that? How dare you bring the energy that
3: name holds into this podcast?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I haven't seen that particular kind of term since like Moist Jund in like the four color, what was that? Like Dragons of Tarkir. No, the magic origin standard, when like everything was four color piles. I was more of a damp Mardu fan myself.
2: Yeah, I liked I liked uh burnt Jeskai. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: Yikes. Dave, you're, You kinda got to an interesting point though, Dave, which was like coverage but
2: beyond even that tweet was a little iffy, right? I mean, I don't want to take shots at the people who had the task of performing the coverage as was assigned to them via Twitter. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, that's fair. I I do think that for some reason, this particular event, maybe people were having a lot of anticipation because it was you know post post the MC to see if anybody had been able to evolve the metagame to deal with with Hogak to see if anything would change or if it'd still be on the top. I think there were just a lot of eyes on this particular Magic Fest. And the choice to not have coverage beyond Twitter I think was um, an unfortunate one and um, not looking likely to change too soon, although I know there's going to be coverage at Grand Prix Vegas. Um, it just seemed kind of like more people were annoyed about it this week than most weekends and certainly I was um, very thirsty for coverage myself and spent a lot of the day trying to find any sliver of information and... Um, You know, I just kind of went just okay. Hungry like the wolf.
0: Anyone else feel like this current format of GPs that neither get coverage officially, don't get a ton of Twitter coverage? I almost feel like they're barely being marketed at all. Like it feels to me like this isn't a sustainable model for their current tournament structure.
1: You know, Stan, what I thought was really odd is this was the first GP where I went to like coverage.channelfireball.com and there wasn't even like a page after the fact on that. Like I had to, we went to, we found the top 16 by going to Channel Fireball's regular web page and I found that on Google.
2: Yeah, that was really confusing to me too is that none of the kind of um, top level ideas or findings I've ever made it to the coverage dot ChannelFireball.com page. So it was kind of like, I spent a while remembering what that URL was then went to it and there was nothing there. Like it's, it's really confusing what's going on as far as anything with the grand prix coverage goes at least with star city games even though there's not a lot of written coverage i mean there's always video but there's not a lot of written coverage from them but at least you always know you're going to get a couple of deck profiles clipped and have the day two meta link show up on that page at some point during the day
1: yeah but i think your question was interesting stan is you know is this sustainable And what does this say about the marketing of GPs as part of the larger Magic Fest? I mean, like, I would contend that without a well-attended GP, you're not going to have a well-attended Magic Fest.
3: So I wonder if this can be a little bit attributed to Hamlin's Razor, which is never attributed to Malice, but can be attributed to inadequacy to a degree. So I'm not saying that Wizards is inadequate. I'm saying maybe overall the corporate overlords are. Because Magic is doing record numbers, they're putting up record profits, etc. And I think that maybe Hasbro is unaware that there's this demand here, right? Because Wizards only get so much money. They have a budget and they have to allow it. So if Hasbro isn't giving them the money to put towards tournaments, to put towards casting, they have to find other venues, hence Channel Fireball doing things, etc., etc. So I wonder if it's just that we, the fans, or we, the movement, or we, Wizards, etc., need to make it more clear that there's a demand for this and people want this. And this lack of coverage is legitimately making people unhappy with their hobby.
0: I don't know how much more demand you can have when a bunch of voices on Twitter, especially notable professional voices are on Twitter, are lamenting the decline of competitive magic. We know that people from WotC staff pay attention to the Reddit, to the subreddit sure. as well. Like, the complaints are pretty vocal. What I'm not seeing is them really comment publicly on the future. I will say one thing, though, and... Part of that is colored by the fact that I feel like this model is unsustainable. Part of me is kind of anticipating uh, a recharge, to be honest, for when they announce the future of Mythic Championships or Pro Tours or whatever that is. Like, Part of me is hopeful at the very least, um, but kind of expecting them to say, we hear you, we're going to put more resources towards coverage and maybe 2019 will be a blip year and we'll see more improvement in the years to come. I really hope so.
2: I, I think that there's one kind of elephant in the room that we're not mentioning here or haven't mentioned, and that is that m- m- we haven't mentioned the fact that there was also an MPL championship event that was on over the weekend. Um, I actually don't even know what days it was was on because I'm um, not particularly interested in the MPL and I just haven't really found time to watch it. The It looks a little bit like on a weekend where they have you Know a bunch of people on coverage doing MPL on Twitch, and then having that end and having a Grand Prix that has no coverage on it at all, it just kind of throws in stark relief that it, I think they're throwing all of their resources behind the uh magic is an esport now uh model, and so in their minds, that means they have to build the viewership for Arena and. That is worrisome to me in the long term, especially since I don't think that d- the demand is really being followed through on by anybody.
0: Yeah, Dave, what you're describing feels a little to me like Oros Boros, where the snake is eating its own tail, where, and we have Magic Arena and MG, MTGO. Like Something we learned from Haswell recently is that tabletop magic is growing, and that they basically drew a line from the success of digital to the success of paper. So if they're going to invest all these resources into promoting their digital experience and not their paper experience, it seems like something isn't aligned.
2: I think when we sum it all up, among you know the Twitter threads of people earnestly calling for more coverage for whatever reason they think there has to be more coverage. I think that would um, you know between the players saying that they're not quite sure what's happening, the attendance being down of the Grand Prixs and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of these different things kind of compounding. I think the main thing is you know it's really hard to enjoy the format right now without having that kind of top level play to watch. Personally. And so I'm hoping that they do something.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is a good opportunity to mention why we even like coverage in the first place. Like, it's more than just watching people play magic, it's watching how they play magic and seeing top level competitors think about the game in ways that we don't, as casual spikes. Like, we don't always necessarily have that experience or the foresight. And like, seeing what the pros of the sport or the game that we enjoy as a hobby are doing. You know, when they pilot the exact same cards we do, I think it's really cool and inspirational even. I mean, it probably helps sell cards, if nothing else.
3: I know it's not exactly a one-to-one comparison, but reading about hockey coverage versus watching a hockey game is worlds apart. And just being able to see players do things and watching those plays and being able to have quote unquote watercolor moments with your magic friends like, hey, did you see that sick rip when they had bonfire their dam off the top? That's much different when you both witnessed it versus, yeah, I heard about that on Twitter, right? There's a, there's a more kinetic feeling to it. So please do something.
0: <laughs> please God do anything. <laughs> Watsy. if you're listening, let us know how we can help.
1: One of the things we've talked about in the past too is there's a very big difference between looking at results... And seeing how we got to those results. So, yeah, long story short, I think that coverage is good for the game, like Dave said, and like Zach said, for the reasons that they mentioned. And the more we get, the more that we have as a a podcast have to talk about, you know, what really happened as opposed to just a list of top 16 decks.
0: Listen, when coverage finally happens next week and in the future, we'll be here to talk about it. But only if it's for modern MTG, because that's what this podcast is about. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are diving into the ley lines of magic. The playables, the unplayables, and the voids. Stay with us. Something we often mention, and even kind of joke about on this show, it's that free spells are very good, especially in modern.
1: Stan, sometimes casting spells for free can be good.
3: Hmm.
0: Coming soon on a Dive Diamond t-shirt. <laughs> and honestly, the word free can mean a few things, depending on the context. So sometimes a free spell can be something cast off of foretold. We've talked about how Arclight Phoenix can sometimes Feel free because you're paying for cantrips, not the bird itself. Phyrexian mana, street wraith, eggs, manamorphose, I think you get the picture. Free spells come in all shapes and sizes, and even super types. But today we're diving into one of the most impactful cycles of free spells in modern, especially relevant right now, and those are the ley lines. With Leyline of the Void being the most played card at MC4 in Barcelona, we're also seeing it as the most played card in recent modern challenges plus another cycle of ley lines being printed in core 20 we felt this week was a great opportunity to talk about the reasons why some ley lines are modern staples and while others are relegated to the bulk bin
3: Absolutely. So we can dive uh, down into a little bit of the history of ley lines. So we'll go through all the sets they've been printed in and talk about the ones that were featured in that set. And either talk about why they are good later, although those will be grouped together, or we'll talk about the ones that are not seeing play and why. So currently there are 11 ley lines, one black, three red, three green, two white, and two blue. They were first featured in the set Guild Pack, which is part of original Ravnica block, and was released in 2006. They all feature the same naming style, ley line of Blink they all monocolor, they cost four mana, two generic, and then two of the specific color of the leyline, and they all have what we were going to refer to as the leyline clause, which reads, if leyline of blank is in your opening hand, you may begin the game with it on the battlefield. So before we dive into the specific leylines, we should really break down the meta or level two choices that go into putting leyline into play, right? So your opening hand is one that you're keeping after all your mulligans. So if you, if you you know, draw your hand and it's kind of garbage and you're going to put it back. You don't get to put one of those Leylands into play before you mulligan. again. It's after you decide to keep. And you can put as many as you want. So if you happen to have three Leyland Void in your hand when you keep, you can put them all into play if you want.
2: Ooh, that's like jackpot in today's metagame.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Destroy all these, I dare you. Although you basically mulled three fewer cards sometimes. Huh. Wait, exactly. <laughs> Virtual card advantage, Shane.
2: Yeah, here comes Force of Vigor coming at you, but not enough.
3: So when you do your turn zero actions, same way with doing mulligans, you start with the player who's going first. So you can't put them into play before you decide if you're keeping or not. So it's a sort of thing where there is an order to it. And it doesn't come up a lot, but it's important to know for high level play for sure.
2: So what you're saying is that these days in certain matchups, you should probably resolve mulligans and then <laughs> resolve the, your turn zero p- actions, right? The player should go. Uh, the player who's about to be on the draw should go. Do you have any turn zero actions to the player that's on the play and then? the player that's on the play should ask the same question to the player on the draw, and then game should proceed from there, kind of?
3: Yeah, well, I love to go, do you turn zero actions? Because I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> Another point is, ley lines are not cast. They're put onto the battlefield, so they can't be countered. Not that there are a lot of pregame countering <laughs> effects that exist right now, but it's important to no, know. Force and negation. I mean, there's
2: force and negation. Yeah. Force
3: and negation, and there is one of the... Chance- the white chancellor from New Phyrexia has a manatithe effect.
2: Yeah, that would be some wild stuff. If those, those could interact and you're like, okay, everybody's putting in uh, Chancellor of the Annex or whatever to be <laughs> able to for- force spike someone else's ley line of the void seems seems good. All right, just to be clear, everybody, we know that none of these things work. <laughs> we want you to know that they don't work. That's why we're talking about them.
0: Something that Shane alluded to that I think is worth touching back on briefly is that when you mulligan to Ley Lines, which they sort of incentivize you to do, they do put you down a card if you put one into play during your turn zero actions. So on the one hand, we play them because they have the potential to blank your opponent's spells or strategy, but you also have to be careful when playing Ley Lines because if you're unable to recoup the card disadvantage that you've incurred by playing these Ley Lines, you can sometimes risk getting blown out if the ley line ever leaves play.
2: This is sort of similar to that uh, surgical extraction problem, right? Where we kind of say, if you're going to play it, make sure you realize that the card can be card disadvantage under most circumstances, and make sure you understand how to recoup that card disadvantage if you can.
3: Right, and the thing that we're talking about too is a lot of these ley lines aren't hard locks. They do shut off an opponent's strategy, but they also often have a way around it. So if you're aggressively mulliganing for a ley line, it's not impossible that your opponent can start playing around it. And if you mulligan to four or three, they're pretty far ahead because they have that information right away that, okay, I'm no longer on the graveyard plan, I'm on the aggro plan. Mm-hmm, for sure.
1: So from this initial guild pack cycle, only one of them really sees modern play, and that's Layline of the void. And we're going to talk about kind of the modern playable ley lines in our later section. But let's talk about why these other four from the guild pact set don't really see any play. So let me look at the text. So we have Leyland of the Meek and White. Creature tokens get plus one, plus one. Only tokens. Okay. That's fascinating.
3: We have the white force right now, which is a quote unquote free white spell that pumps all creatures, not just tokens, and that's even seeing not even you know kind of fringe questionable play so this card feels like it was very balanced and they wanted to make sure it wasn't going to push something over in standard or maybe they wanted it to reward a strategy either way this isn't even z playing tokens
1: yeah blue leyline of singularity all non-land permanents are legendary this probably had a little bit more meaning
3: when like the legendary rule was a little bit more strict maybe i don't know right you could play a Legendary Permanent to blow up your opponent's Legendary Permanent, for instance, but yeah. now it's... Ugh. So Red, Leyline of Lightning. Whenever you cast a spell, you can pay
1: one mana. If you do, Leyline of Lightning, say that three times fast, deals one damage to target player or planeswalker. A little limited there. One damage isn't very much. I mean, that can add up, but paying the mana uh, just seems a little restrictive there. It's really
0: bad. Yeah, yeah. Really bad.
1: just it's just it's bad. just bad efficiency. Since
0: when do red decks not have excess mana to spend on one point of damage, though?
1: <laughs> I, I'm just so upset with you. <laughs> and in green, Leyline of Life Force, creature spells cannot be countered.
0: So, when we were doing research for this episode, there was this brief moment where I thought, hey, this seems potentially playable in the right deck, until I remembered that Cavern of Souls exists and is better in every way.
2: <laughs> what if this but a land? <laughs> What if this enchantment tapped for mana, right? <laughs> Are you ready for Return to Theros? So after that cycle in Guild Pack came another cycle in M11 that featured four new cards and a reprint of Leyline of the Void. One of these new ones is the only other one that sees consistent modern play, and that is Leyline of Sanctity. Another, And we'll discuss that one later. Uh, so what of the other three see play? Uh, let's take a look at the text and talk a little bit about How weird they are. (laughs) So the blue one is Leyline of Anticipation, which is you may cast non-land cards as though they had flash. That's pretty cool. It seems good. Uh, I think it's one of those ones where it's like, is this effect really worth a card? Ultimately, you need to be in the right deck to make that make sense.
3: Quicken already exists and it draws you a card. And I know that's one mana and not quite the same, but I feel like that would have had to see fringe play and then get replaced with this
2: for this to be a viable effect. Well, I mean, the thing is, Quicken is... So let's not go too far down this <laughs> rabbit hole, but Quicken is is only gives you one spell, and this gives you all of them, right, including creatures. So you could have a deck where you get to cast creatures uh, at flash, all of them. So, but you'd you'd really want to have uh, some powerful stuff happening, or to make that worth it.
3: It's worth pointing out. I think this card would be green nowadays if it was printed. Hmm. Might be. Oh yeah. no, that seems like it seems like a
1: blue ability, like to Fairy Time Raveler and stuff like that.
2: Yeah. Uh, The red one is called Leyline of Punishment, and apparently they felt like Leyline of Lightning was not punishing enough, so they made this one. (laughs) And the text on this says, players can't gain life, damage can't be prevented. This one actually seems like a little bit more useful here and there, but it's definitely a very niche kind of focused, sideboard kind of card. I
3: do believe there was a time where Scred brought this in against Burn, so they could not bring things like Core Firewalker in or Dragon's Claw of their own for the matchup. We are far beyond then. And even then, I believe I picked these up for a quarter.
1: Well, anti Dragon's Claw attack. I love yeah. it. <laughs> hey, you know
2: what? Dragon's Claw is yes. showing up in Mono oh, Red. It's very Phoenix. good. It's very good. Yeah. So, um, and then the last one is the green one, uh, Ley Line of Vitality, which is creatures you control get plus O plus one. When a creature ETBs under your control, you gain one life.
0: Wow. Big game. So I personally feel like these are a bit more pushed than the ones from Guilt Pact. Not only because Sanctity's role in the format has been proven, but the others have texts that can actually be relevant, I think, in certain decks. The obvious one is Leyline of Punishment. Not only does it look like a burn plant, but it appeared in a 5-0 list as recently as July in Modern. Likewise, Leyline of Anticipation occasionally pops up in Legacy combo decks as a way to win at instant speed, and the green one is just a card. Yeah, certainly is a piece of cardboard
2: well see i I kind of think the green one actually could show up sometime uh because if there was some kind of infinite combo deck where you wanted to make sure you got a soul you know a soul warden effect into play and maybe you wanted one that couldn't be killed by a lightning bolt, maybe someday uh Leyland of vitality could be a fit for that. It definitely feels like it would have to be some kind of part of an infinite combo of some some kind
1: yeah, for sure it might be just like a, like a infinite life arbitrarily large amounts of life combo yeah
2: plus like kitchen finks and something that doesn't let you put counters on it or or something like that so for sure
0: finally the most recent cycle of ley lines appeared this summer in core 20 this cycle featured reprints of void sanctity and anticipation but we got new ley lines in red ley line of combustion as well as green and that was ley line of abundance both of which we will talk about shortly
2: So I think one thing that's really interesting to me about the ley lines overall is just how kind of specific and narrow the designs for these cards really are. Yeah, for sure. Right? If you look at all the cards, including the ones that we haven't read the text from yet, which, you know, people are kind of familiar with what Void and a Sanctity and Combustion Abundance do, um, there's kind of two groups, right? One is they're very powerful but narrow defensive cards, something that really nerfs somebody else's plan but doesn't necessarily help you in your plan. And then the others are these kind of weird but unique build around cards. There's not any of them that are really value cards straight up, I don't think.
0: You don't think. Line of Abundance, the new green one, is a value card that makes all of I, your mana dorks tap for an extra mana. Well, you have to run, so mana, to dorks. run mana dorks. Yeah, yeah.
3: mana not most decks don't run them. It's a build around restriction, and ramp decks do. So it's probably value for those decks, but those are few and far between.
2: And I also think that that's part of turning those decks into more of an infinite combo kind of enabler than it is turning them into running them for something that helps you ramp harder, basically. Because there's other cards that let you do that better. So, you know, basically if you look at the state of what's, what's going on here, the defensive ones are pretty good. The build around ones have been pretty much less useful, but there's a couple that are starting to pop up. And I think that the one thing that we want to make sure people remember is that if you are looking at any of these cards, they are for very, very narrow uses. And that's the trade that you, uh, you make for being able to cast them for free is that it's a super specific kind of tool. It's a scalpel. It's not really a sledgehammer.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why we will not see something like a Leyline of Blood Moon or Leyline of the Moon or something, because these aren't meant to be turn zero, shut down an opponent's deck. And even against Hogak where they're being used, I don't think they're supposed to act like a valve like that. It's supposed to be more options at a cost.
0: So why do you guys think WotC continues to explore design space with these ley lines? Like on the one hand, black, white, blue, apparently perfect now but red and green, these are new iterations. Do you think on, Do you think R&D potentially wants ley lines to be even more prevalent in the magic formats and meta in general?
1: I think, that, I mean, like Dave was sort of inferring earlier, I think, is that they're interesting, right? Is I think that they're one of the spaces that they have to be very careful with because they can either be too powerful on a defensive level or too powerful on a turn A an archetype into something perhaps overly powerful. Like, you know, if, if it was an ETB style deck and it was like, every time a creature ETBs do X, Y, Z, and it was just too much that, you know, they have to be really smart in the way they design these cards. So I think it's cool that they keep going back to the well a little bit and saying, what can we try here? You know, can we push the envelope in a little bit of a way that makes this card more playable? And it's one of the cards we're going to be talking about later in our show. Is you know, you know, a color that never had a really playable ley line probably has one now.
2: Yeah, I think that it's that first line of line of text that says if you begin the game with this in your opening hand, you get to put it into play for free. That's something that someone who's new to the game can get and think is very cool and probably get excited about. And then at the same time, it can be a really powerful tool for competitive players, sometimes depending on which card is available, which ley line is available in what format. I do think that it's one of those cards where the mechanic is almost more exciting than the what they've actually done with it for the most part. Because I think if you're a new player who opened a ley line, you would be like, this card is sweet. I get to play it for free. And then you're like, why do I care if my stuff has flash? It's kind of, you know, so it's a little counterintuitive in that way. I think they are trying to leverage this tool that they have to be able to do something that's exciting for people. And that's probably part of why they keep going back and forth. I do think one thing that's interesting, though, is that these cycles have been printed three times now, and Leyline of the Void has been in it every time. And it kind of feels like they're just a pretense to reprint Leyline of the Void over and over again
3: only one was created perfect from the get-go, and it was a black one. Like we said, there is a single black ley line that has been printed, and it is Leyline of the Void.
2: Yeah. I mean, Leyline of Sanctity was pretty important, I think, to get into modern from my research from when I was looking into this into the sets or into this this cycle. I don't think there was another resilient kind of target player has hexproof effect around before Leyline of Sanctity that was available in modern so i think that was just something that they had to get into kind of more updated formats than where it had been before um and so that makes some sense to me too but uh mostly i think they just want to keep the price of Leyline of the void down
3: <laughs> which being orb came shortly after but th- this was definitely the precursor
2: yeah so before we go on i got a pop quiz
3: <gasps> yeah, yeah,
2: I love it. Oh no, Are you guys! I, I, I'm
3: gonna ace it. you losers! I'm gonna get this one.
2: Who is ready for math?
3: Oh, I my, my mom says I gotta go home. <laughs> Zach just left the podcast.
2: This is I'm gonna turn my chair around backwards. I'm I don't want you sit, to rap sit with on me. it. I'm gonna, let's let's rap about math, everybody. Tell
0: <laughs> me, so, Dave. Mr. Harbarger is my dad.
3: My mom says that I'm really sick and I should go.
2: Yeah, she says stop learning math from the guy down at the card store. Um, <laughs> so. Like most of our of our episodes, this is the time for us to talk about our obligatory Frank Carson article <laughs> where we break down the math a little bit of of using these things because the trick with ley lines or the thing that everybody needs to keep in, in mind with ley lines is that not all of them are good if you draw them later yeah. and especially in this meta game right now people are very into playing ley lines that they cannot cast in their in their decks ever so they Everywhere. really only are useful if you get them off the draw right exactly so how much have you thought about what the probability is of getting one of these into your opening draw a lot a, of seven all the time daily daily i toss and
3: turn at night just thinking about the odds totally I obsessed wonder, about it constantly
1: my, my wife wonders what i'm thinking about at night and there's a little thought bubble. my wife there's a little thought bubble over my head and it's how much can I mulligan to get that
2: ley line? <laughs> Running milliline line math again. Um, so obviously the, the London mulligan made a little bit of a difference here because everybody now has a little bit more incentive to try to mull to cards that they need. Both the people that... Uh, want ley lines and and also the people who want to fight against ley lines with something like enchantment hape. So these odds basically apply, of course, to any card that is a four of in your deck that you would like to see in your opening draw. And so I think this this is just good math to keep around and keep in mind. So if if you keep seven, the odds of you drawing a ley line in your opening hand are 40%.
1: Yeah, that's also just a good thing to know in general. Like, if you play any four of, uh,
2: you're about forty percent odds to have one of your four ofs in your opener. And if you, I mean, to me, that's actually a little bit higher than I I thought it would be if you think about it. You know, sixty cards, your deck has twelve different four ofs of it in it. How is it possible that I could be forty percent to draw any one of you know a given one of those? Well, that's just that's just how probability works. So if you are willing to multiply six. The odds go up only 20%. They go up to 63.9%. So that's pretty good, though. Where, yeah, yes, a this jump. is where it suddenly becomes kind of eh, maybe you got to get a little lucky to being like, hey, more than half the time when you do this, you're going to get, uh, you're probably going to get that ley line. It gets even bigger if you go down to five, which is you are 78% likely to draw one of your ley lines or one of your four ofs if you mull down to five. And this is the London mall, yeah. This is with the London Mall, yeah. yeah. That's we're not even gonna look at anything, the old stuff. And then it kind of goes up from there, but not as not as much, right? So four is eighty-seven percent, three is ninety-two percent, two is ninety-five percent, and willing to multi one means that you would get it ninety-seven percent of the time. The thing that's interesting about that is that you know, if you're willing to multi one, that means that you've looked at seven different opening hands, basically and just been trying to get one that has your ley line in it which is a lot of cards you you see 49 different cards and you know you have to pitch them back uh, because of the rules, of the London Mulligan, but you know that's that's just kind of how it works. So it's it's higher now under the London Mulligan, but not absurdly. So I think once you get up to the willing to multi to three to one, you get most closer to ninety percent now than you used to. But in those kind of middle areas, keeping seven, keeping six, keeping five, it's really going to hover between you know forty percent, let's call it sixty percent if you multi six, and then eighty percent if you're willing to multi to five.
1: Are there like any ley lines that are playable and modern right now where you don't want it in your opening hand? Like I'm just trying to think like, you know, let's say, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to mull to five. I don't get
3: it and I'll be okay drawing this later. I think personally that Leyland of Combustion is okay to cast later in the game. Obviously, you're getting more mileage out of it early, but that's one that when I draw it, I don't hate it. I mentioned that in a previous episode. I'll mention it when I talk about it again in this episode. But I think that's one where if I don't see it early, I'm not crestfallen.
2: Yeah. And let's talk about how likely you are to get those later. Because if you draw five cards after your initial hand, so if you, draw, if you see 12 cards in a game, basically, there's a 33% chance that you'll get one or more lay lines in that opening 12. And then if you draw 10 or more, the chances are 50%. So there's a good chance that you would get, or sorry, the chances are actually closer to 60%. The reason I wanted to bring this up is because if you miss on drawing your lay line on your opening draw, there's actually a good chance that you're going to get it in subsequent turns. So if you are playing a deck where you cannot cast the, the ley line that you're going to get later, you need to understand that you're probably going to draw a brick somewhere down the line as a result of not getting, not getting a ley line in your opening hand. And that is really bad, right? And so mm-hmm. you have to make sure that you're okay with that or that your, your plan is set up of the, with a, that whatever hand you do keep with seven to be able to win, even though there's a pretty good likelihood that you're going to draw a total blank at some point in the next five turns. Yeah, you really can't afford that in Modern too much. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the deck that you're in, right? So if you have Faithless Looting or Scries and you can control the the cards that you're seeing a little bit, then that mitigates that quite a bit. If you're in a deck that has no way to interact with the draws that they're making, then you're, yeah, yeah you are in trouble if you're if you're going that way. So that's why I think when we see people like playing uh, Leyline in Burn... That really says a lot about where the format is right now because burn cannot do anything if they draw a leyline off the top, and that's a huge problem for them because draws are very much at a uh, at a premium in in burn. Although you know, Horizon lands have helped with that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I, I had to say I was really surprised to see the four of leyline in burn when you know something like Tormod's Crypt triggers prowess on those Swift spears, and it's a zero CMC card. But you know, I think we can get a little bit more. Into that later
0: on, we talk about ley line of the Void. Probably desperate times call for desperate measures.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's not a one and done, that's for sure. So, now we're going to talk a little bit about these modern playable ley lines we've been referring to. And so, out of the 11 of the modern legal ley lines, which is all of them, of course, only four really see modern play. And two of those are recent additions in uh, Corset 20, which are still kind of proving themselves. And so, the four that see play are Leyland of the Void. Leyline of Sanctity, Leyline of Abundance, and Leyline of Combustion. So, why these cards? So, we're going to break down uh, each one of these and see why they're a cut above the rest. And so, I'll start with Leyline of the Void, uh, one of my favorite sideboard and now main deck cards. So, this is <laughs> you know, so currently the most played card in modern. Um, somehow, Leyline of the yeah, Void. Brutal. So Leyland of the Void reads, if a card would be put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, exile it instead. So I'm gonna read this one more time. This is very important. If a card would be put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, exile it instead. So let's talk about a little bit why it's incredibly popular at the moment, right? So I think the primary thing, of course, with a Hogak and Dredge-ish type metagame, it's just, just a really true silver bullet. I guess any graveyard strategy.
2: Yeah. And we've talked about how modern is kind of like graveyard the format. So it's it's that's part of the reason that it's risen to such prominence, especially over sure. the last 12 months or so.
3: I mean, people talk about how a graveyard is a second hand, so it's nice to cut off that person's second hand. a yeah. hammer up, y'all. Man, way
1: to way to get down my bullet points here, Zachy. So we've got the the opponent's graveyard essentially ceased to exist, right? So that that really shuts down any graveyard strategy because they just don't have a graveyard. But it can also do some heavy lifting against strategies like hardened scales, which requires a creature to die. And dying means enter the graveyard from play. If a card never reaches your opponent's graveyard at all, it's exiled
2: instead, right? Right. So that means you don't trigger things like modular, for example, is what you're, what you're talking about with that, right? Shane? Exactly. Yes. Right. Because it's, it works the same way that Path to Exile does, which is there are a lot of creatures in modern that have death triggers, even if they're not graveyard uh decks right so that's just a good thing to remember
1: yeah and another really important thing right now is it's non-symmetrical so let's talk a little bit about what that means we talked about symmetry here before but so something like thalia garden of thraben right it causes non-creature spells to cost one mana more but that's symmetrical so it impacts both you and your opponent and this effect kind of gets mitigated by how you build your deck like in humans doesn't have a lot of non-creature spells. Uh, you know, but in terms of graveyard hate, so we have something like Rest in Peace, right? That performs a similar effect to Leyline of the Void, but that's a symmetrical effect. So if you run Rest in Peace and might want to access your graveyard, that shuts it off for you as well, and that's an issue. So something like blue-white control, you might want to snap, cast, or mage some spells via flashback from your graveyard. If you have a rest in peace out, you can't do that anymore. So Leyline of the Void only impacts your opponent, and so that, that allows any deck, even like a graveyard deck, like Hogak or Dredge, to run Leyline of the Void in an attempt to shut down your opponents that are on a similar game plan without really impacting your game plan at all. And that's why it's one of the reasons I think why it's so good right now. One of the things I think is worth talking about is some of the rule rule details about Leyland of the Void, the kind of the, some of the the words I was stressing when I was reading the card. The ability of Leyland of the Void creates a replacement effect. And you can see that indicated by the word instead. So the, what this does is this enchantment sits around waiting for a card to be put in an opponent's graveyard and replaces that with exile the card.
3: It's worth noting that this is the reason why Anger of the Gods is a pretty good modern card as well, because it has the same replacement effect where if a creature would die, which means goes to the graveyard, they're ex- exiled instead. So it's worth noting in the future, effects like that do this thing whether you're avoiding death triggers.
1: Yeah, for sure. Good point, Zach. Another thing that's interesting is Leyline deals with cards, but not tokens. And yeah, this is pretty interesting. This could yeah. matter a bit, because like, tokens do enter the graveyard like a regular creature does, but they're removed as a state-based effect. So because they go to the graveyard, that's they go to the graveyard long enough to trigger a relevant ability that's looking for something that's
3: dying or entering the graveyard. Something that uh, Mark Rosewater has talked about a bit on his blog on Tumblr is how much R&D dislikes the token type and wishes that they could have not had it and just redone it from the get-go because of things like this, quite frankly, where tokens have a weird, almost non-unique identity that they had to start including them in packs and they don't function the same as normal cards even. So there's stuff like this where like, okay, it's exiled. No, it's my token. So my general still triggers and this happens. Like, it, There's just
2: a lot of weird fringe cases that this can lead to. Does he kind of mean that he just wishes they had made them generate a card or something yes, that was I, a I believe that, for a card instead yeah, of being a separate type.
3: Yeah, I don't think the issue is with things creating other things. It's that they create a token of a right. thing. And and that's the rules interact in a weird way, like we said. Because what is a token? When things pump tokens not creatures, what does that mean thematically in game? Interesting.
0: Fun fact tokens have existed since Alpha.
2: It's
3: true. Wild. What was it? Was it that weird hive thing? The hive, yeah. Also, tokens have existed. I believe there was a Hydra that got head tokens.
2: Yep, <laughs> yep. Get out your glass beads and your velvet bag with your with your twenties. Break out your runts. Oh, I can't wait for Hydra Week. <laughs> it's second only to Shark Week.
1: All right. So, um, Dave kind of got at this earlier, but you know, because the card never reaches the opponent's graveyard, that that and it's instead of exile that shuts down some interesting things like undying, like modular, like persist. So, anything that needs a card to die or to be put into a graveyard from play no longer functions underneath a ley line. Um, one of the things that does make it different from rest in peace is it doesn't exile graveyards as it comes into play and so it doesn't have any kind of enter the battlefield effect so when it comes into play anything that happens from then on is going to get exiled
2: yeah it's even more reasons that you need it in your opening hand if you're playing it because it's like why bother if you're going to play it on turn four unless it's a redundant unless it's one to replace one that's been destroyed
3: we talked about how rest in peace was too slow on turn two So on turn four, this is most likely very much too slow. Yeah, sure. Well, you're dead by then. And it doesn't even exile, right? Right. Rest in peace exiles on UTB. This just exiles after it's on the battlefield. Zach got an interesting reason why
1: this card is so powerful and effectively operates as card advantage for you, is your graveyard decks are more or less using their graveyard as an extension of their hand. We talked about this a lot in our dredge episode. So dredge is putting all these cards into the graveyard, effectively acts as the hand. If the dredge player is no longer able to access those cards that would normally go into their graveyard, they're going to lose that source of card advantage against you. So you're gaining it
2: back in a powerful way against them. So I think this is a really great point about Leyland of the Void and why it's good sometimes, but not all the time, right? Because in where we are right now, especially with decks like, you know, uh, Hogak and Dredge being really big, and then other decks that sort of use the graveyard, but not as, not as completely, um, that makes Leyland of the Void really good right now. But people do tend to bring it in all the time against decks that it's just okay against yes. because they don't have any other tools against the graveyard or maybe they spend too much time kind of over sideboarding about decks that have the graveyard as like a secondary plan right so i think that this is a, a something that you really should think about when you're going to play Leyland of void when you're going to add it to your sideboard as opposed to other sideboard options because there might be things that work better later in the game as opposed to something that's scorched earth like Leyland of void where you gotta play it yeah, you got to play it on turn one for it to be useful. For example, you know I've been playing a good amount of Modern Red Phoenix, which is suddenly the second most popular deck on the on the day two uh, meta share. And I don't think Leyline of the Void is that great against Modern Red Phoenix. It's good and helpful, and does definitely make the deck lose some of its very powerful plays. But it doesn't totally cripple that deck, and so you get back into one of those things where. Leylands are really good and, and really worth mulling to if you know it's going to shut off their deck, like it can with Dredge. You know, Ross mentioned last week that Leyline doesn't necessarily shut down the kind of green-black Hogak decks because they can play a good amount of creatures out on their own that don't go necessarily go into the graveyard and have to do that synergy to work. And then maybe sometimes you can kind of hard convoke a, a Hogak out of your hand and kind of move on. I mean, it would take a lot to get there, but you can play this game where you can play creatures out if you're green black. And so it's still quite crippling if you're on the green black Hogak to heavily line played against you, but it's kind of one take down from total destruction. And then you get to something like, is it Phoenix or mono red Phoenix where it's, good against it and it's a tool against it but if you mull to a hand that the only action you have is leyline of the void and expect to definitely win it because of that i think you're going to be in for a rude awakening so you have to keep that in mind when you're playing this is that just because a deck uses the graveyard it doesn't always use it completely enough for leyline of the void to be your win condition which is what you really want it to be
0: so as long as we're talking about leyline of the void i want to float a thought that i've had recently if and when the modern meta starts to hinge on playing four leyline of the void specifically, does this perhaps in and of itself indicate that the format is unhealthy? And the reason I'm considering this hypothesis is that turn two rest in peace is literally too slow and surgical. Like sometimes, yeah. I mean, sometimes yeah, but we're considering Hogak right as yeah. the menace. Surgical doesn't do enough. Ravenous Trap, Torment Script, and Relic are one shots that can be played around, sometimes barely even slowing the Hogak player down. So, if anyone is serious about attacking Hogak, they have to play four ley lines. And I can't shake this feeling that we never actually want to be in formats where players need the four to compete.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really good point, Stan. Like, there's no comparison for like artifact hate like this, right? So, like, let's say Affinity or Hardened Scales are taking over the format. There's no kind of like colorless card or a Leyline card that can be played in the same fashion. So it's kind of like this canary in the coal mine. Like, if you if if you see this many Leyline of the voids and in, in decks that can't even cast it, you can
2: tell something's going wrong. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with with that second half of it. I do think that the it's not necessarily true that this is the only tool that's effective for graveyard hate against Hogak. I just think that. In some ways, there are, some, there are many decks that don't have a plan that's good against Hogak and then are able to run Graveyard Disruption to help supplement that plan. So again, to go back to like a Burn or red Phoenix, you know, having an aggressive plan plus a little graveyard hate to help disrupt Hogak and take them off of their curve is good and helps you helps you get there. The decks that that have to run Leyline line of the void in order to take them completely off their plan, no matter what it does to their own plan, that's where things I think indicate that the metagame is kind of getting unstable and, and bad. You know, definitely having so many people being willing to run a card that's a blank off the top later is a bad indication.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And to compound what Dave's saying, I think the issue is not... No one thinks "Lay in the Void is too good, right? Or that this card's busted. It's just that it's the fastest graveyard hate outside of maybe Tormod's Crypt. And th- these other graveyard hate cards, they're not bad cards. No one thinks Rest in Peace is an underpowered card or anything. So I think that this is a negative sign, just because that if it's outclassing those other cards to such a degree, what is happening? Because those Relic Regenesis is a modern playable card. It's, it shows them sideboards all the time. It's a reasonable card to play. So why is a one mana exile effect not good enough?
2: I think that's a great, great point, Zach. I will say, I think I, I think it's a little unfair to say that they are outclassing like Leyline is outclassing those other cards. I think it's more so that again, the there are a preponderance of decks that don't have a plan that works proactively on their own that is also effective against Hogak. In a sense that either they race it or they disrupt it through an infinite combo like Borza or something like that where you can can win in a different way. Um, so what people are doing is saying well I still want to play my X deck so I'm going to put four landline of the void in this in the sideboard and go on my merry way and hope that's good enough and sometimes it is good enough but it, it is unfortunate that that's what's happening to tons of decks in the, in the format is that they're being forced to do this in order to stay competitive right now yeah good point thank you Dave so modern's most popular card recently I saw a buy list uh, people posting that the buy list at, at uh, GP Minneapolis were $15 on site for Leyline line of the void uh buy less price from dealers so i can't imagine what they're selling it for probably 20 bucks a pop if they're paying that much for it maybe 25. so the brief dip we got off of m20 is probably gone mm. um hopefully you have your set no and hopefully we won't be needing them forever yes
0: yeah that's a car that i picked up a playset of as soon as i can and i hope i never have to play it exactly I want to jump next into Leyline of Sanctity, the white one. (laughs) The white one. Two white white, you have hexproof. Basically, you can't be the target of spells or abilities that your opponent controls. And I'm excited to talk about this card, even though I've never played it. I don't own a single copy, but because it has wrecked me truly countless times in my several years of experience as a modern player. And like Leyland of the Void, this can serve as a silver bullet against a number of popular decks in the format. So perhaps the most common reason that Sanctity gets sided in is against Burn. It can be good against midrange for both shutting off opponent's hand disruption as well as targeted edict effects like Liliana of the Veil. It's good against Storm because it'll shut off a Grape Shot and an Aria Flame. You can side it in against Scapeshift to shut off the Valakut wind condition. Heck, it's even good against 8-Rack. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while it, since
2: we mentioned 8-Rack.
0: Anything to put that
2: deck back in its place.
0: Maybe it's 10-Rack now. I forget the proper nomenclature.
3: Well, it's 10-Rack and their son 8-Rack. And don't speak to either of them ever <laughs> again. <laughs>
0: So this one actually feels to me like one of the biggest liabilities when it's not in your opening hand because casting this on turn 4 or later could realistically be too late against the decks that you would use it for. So, you know, something like Burn by turn 4 can easily have done like at least 10 damage to you, if not more. Midrange probably has picked apart your hand by now. Storm might have comboed off by turn 4. And not to mention that at least 3 turns your opponent has now had to draw a removal spell for a ley line if that's something that they're siding in as well.
1: Yeah, and the ones you mentioned above, I think maybe Scapeshift and Valakit, like turn forward, probably still be okay. That's about it. Yeah, that's a good point.
3: But even then, the primetime beatdown plan might be very real. For real.
2: I mean, I think it's interesting to see this list of decks that it could be effective against, and I'm just imagining myself considering s- siding this card in right now, and I think it's so dependent on the deck that i'm playing right because while i agree with you that this one would be really bad to draw off the top i think there's also plenty of worlds where it's okay to draw off the top and play it it just but it does mean that i would almost never see this being in a deck where you wouldn't be able to cast it unlike ley line of the void like i don't think that the metagame is ever going to be um kind of ingrown enough that having hex proof is that necessary well, weirdly,
1: one of the things that is, you know, an up-and-comer is that Neoform deck. And I had Neoform bring it in against me on Burn. And I think that was just kind of maybe to, to give them, you know, extra time to combo off. But I can also see why they would have it is against Tan Disruption. But, you know, yeah. they, they don't want to be picked apart early on. They want to keep their cards that they need. So I can see why they would have it right now as well.
2: I definitely played it when I was piloting Storm. I had Leyland of Sanctity in the sideboard to help me against Thoughtseize decks.
3: Yeah, I think it's worth noting here that Ad Nauseam will typically run this card sideboard as well because they are a very fragile combo deck and a couple, you know, well-timed Thoughtseize Inquisitions can strip out their win pieces. So to them, it's worth having this in play so they don't have to worry about anything like that.
1: Yeah, that brief period of time when Bogles made a big comeback, its one of the reasons was because I think they realized that Leyland of Sanctity was main you know, was main deckable for them because it had a pretty high floor in Bogles and a really high ceiling because they have those fragile hands that don't want to get, get disrupted. They don't want to face a Liliana of the Veil's Edict. Like if they can only get one creature or maybe they didn't have a fetch to get a Dryad Arbor.
3: Right. And there are cards in the deck that reward them for having more enchantments. So not only does it protect them, but it it's in their game plan as well, And it's a little more fringe, but it's a deck where you can run this main board even honestly and, sometimes you're just rewarded for it and other times it's just all right i have this out and now my ethereal armor is getting a little bit of bump
0: there are a couple funky rule interactions with this card that you should probably be aware of so for starters you can still target yourself under hexproof it is not shroud wherein that is the distinction Likewise, Hexproof will not protect you from non-targeting spells and abilities. So for instance, a a card like Liliana's Triumph states each opponent sacks a creature.
3: same for Chandra Torture Defiance, where the plus two reads each opponent takes two damage. So things like that that read each and not target explicitly will go around this. The card has to read target.
0: So this card can also have an impact similar to... Leylon of the Void and how it can be perceived as card advantage because it can often make an opponent's card stuck in their hand. So for instance, if you're siding this in against a burn player and they've got Lava Spike or a mid-range player and they've got Thoughtseize, those cards are essentially uncastable. So if they can't cast them, it's almost as good as not having the card in their hand at all. Why do you guys think this card may have fallen out of favor recently, and how much of that do you think might be just tied to Bogle's position in the meta as kind of one of the most popular white decks?
1: Yeah, one of the things that I thought was interesting about this card is it's had like a couple really big price spikes. And so like, you know, when when is a card like this something that
2: people really want to be playing? Well, I think there was a big supply and demand thing here, though, because it was printed in a core set that was probably medium popular. The player base got a lot bigger and then people just didn't have them. So there, you know, cause it was only an M11. There just weren't that many out there for people to have. And so that's part of the reason it got to 50 bucks at one point in time.
1: But one of the things I was thinking about too, is like there was a time when burn was even more popular than it is now. And so like burn used to focus more on the targeted direct damage. And then as it got creatures in, Idolon of the Great Revel, it got soon after that uh, Monastery Swift Spear. So it was those were really powerful. And then Atarka's Command was soon after that, and like Stan said, that was one of those ones that was like each opponent gets dealt damage. So I think when Naya burn was more popular than Boros burn, uh, one of the reasons being of Atarka's Command. So I think those were kind of all reasons that I can think of why you know, Leyline of Sanctity became even less good against burn.
3: I think that land and time of the sun might not be over and with the banning of Hogak and the emergence of new archetypes we might see it return it's a unique effect like as like we mentioned the only other card that really does this is Witchbane Orb which is a four mana artifact which is not a free card you put into play on turn zero so I think there's time for this to still be powerful and good we have to see what the meta holds after the ideal caging of the necropolis.
0: Yeah, I kind of agree with Zach, especially if Burn continues to grow its position in the meta share. Uh, I think this is a card that people are gonna start turning to a little bit more. I mean, if for no other reason, then it's more accessible than ever, thanks to that repeat reprint.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I would also look to see if like Storm somehow gets gets popular again or a blue red spells deck that targets with some kind of big payoff like that. I mean, what if Stramos got really popular, you know, like that? That this is the type of thing that shuts down their win con. It makes it really hard for them to get at you. So,
3: I, I think it's fair to say that we're all
2: asleep sleeve on this, but more of a time capsule sleeve. And you can <laughs> dig it up one day in the future. Yeah. I mean, this is a tool to have available. And if you don't have them, they're probably pretty priced pretty well right now. It's probably worth getting a at. And you have to play
0: white decks, Dave.
3: No, you don't. Hey,
2: you, no, don't, have have to, you, you don't have to play white decks to play a ley line. <laughs> You fool. As <laughs> much as I said earlier, you probably yeah, sh-
3: metamorphose two white guest
0: sanctity. Hey,
2: I, I definitely did that when I was playing Storm one time because Oof. to like stop getting thought seized, essentially. Stop thought seizing me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As much as I said earlier, I think I'm more inclined to play this one in a deck that I can cast it. We then listed like five decks that you couldn't cast it in anyway. So maybe it's uh, it can be as good as and versatile as Leyline of the Void.
3: You can cast an ad nauseum via your mana rocks. Not that you want to spend them that way, but you can. Right.
2: So our next one is Leyline of Abundance, um, and and it reads: Whenever you tap a creature for mana, add an additional green. And then it has an activated ability that says: Six colorless green green. Put a plus one plus one counter on each creature you control. <laughs> Only eight mana. But it's eight mana. Yeah. Hey, hey right, deck. There. That's nothing. Well, I think that's the point though, right? Is that this card exists to be put into a space and time where generating 8 mana and generating maybe 16 or 24 mana even is in fact nothing. Because I do think that this card exists essentially to enable infinite or massive generation of mana for doing broken things. So the activated ability dimension of it is pretty interesting. And we even saw it played in a deck piloted by John Stern at at Mythic Championship Barcelona. Full place that main deck because this is a card that actually is part of your plan. It's one of the only ley lines that is kind of an on-plan card to use no matter what. And the idea there was to kind of give some extra juice to the Devoted Druid combo deck yeah for sure and design designer ramp into things like Karn the great creator as fast as possible you know doing the whole lattice thing which everybody is really enjoying or really tired of at this point the uh, the next thing that's going to be hiding behind when hogak gets banned um, and then you can also do things like you know generate a huge amount of mana and make a giant walking ballista and things like that and basically Ley Line of abundance is just on plan for all of those things and so, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily, um, you know, if this is a deck that we're going to see a lot right now or a card in that archetype of decks that we're going to see a lot right now. But it's definitely something to keep an eye on as far as a car, a very powerful card that's out there on the fringe just waiting for a home for the right shell to kind of make it pop for for real. So Shane, you've been playing Devoted, Druid, Carnbow lately a couple of times. I mean, do you think this is helpful? Do you think it's overkill or?
1: Yeah, it might be win more. I don't really know. Like, it's not necessary at all for the infinite mana combo. Like, if you just want to, you know, tutor up a giant walking ballista and get it onto the battlefield and, 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 you know, ping your opponent to death, that's not necessary for that at all. But, like you said, I think it could be more useful in the all in strategy that has, you know, a lot of birds of paradise, a lot of noble hierarchs. And you really could get Karn online or a Teferi online if you're doing like a band strategy. But what we're seeing now is that's kind of like the Utopia Sroll Arbor Elf combo. And I don't really know if that's more resilient. There's definitely more pieces involved in that. Like uh maybe maybe like maybe one more piece. But what I think one of the things I think is cool about that is it can make for some larger chords more quickly, like a chord of calling. That aura could allow you to like do a double spell, like you can cast your Eldamry's Call into that Vizier of Remedies on the same turn, which typically can be challenging, even with like the Utopia Sprawl Arbor Elf type deck.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to note that the deck list that we have linked here, at least, does not have Cord or Eldamry's Call in it. Yes, it's running the freed the freed from the real combo version, which is basically another way to. Um, make infinite mana off of enchanting a a mana dork with freed from the real and then having it have the one mana activated ability to untap itself and so you just kind of tap and untap it over and over and over again which is a pretty kind of different way to do it um it is interesting that there's less creature search in this deck than most of these typically have it's just relying on finale of devastation so I'm, i'm kind of surprised that it went that way instead
1: Yeah, I think it's just, it's like yet another way to try to build a deck like this, of which there are maybe five, like somewhat viable ways. So it might be one of those ones that sort of comes into vogue and people start testing with it again.
2: Yeah. But I think for now, this is a powerful card to keep an eye on, unless you're, and if you're super into this. Universe of decks, you probably should be trying it out, seeing if you can proxy them up and play with your friends, and then see if it's something that you want to try or throw them in the trade binder for when it gets broken, because this does feel like one of those cards that eventually someone will figure out a way to do something amazing with.
0: So, do you guys think that this is card advantage if it's mostly functioning as a ramp spell? You know, one of the things we talked about with all the other ley lines is how they do equate to card advantage. And I think that's slightly harder to grasp with a spell like this.
2: Yeah. I think this one is just about being a plan, part of your plan. A like, this is not, this is not a sideboard card, right? This is something that is part of a deck that wants to ramp a lot. And so it doesn't have to be card advantage in that sense, because it's part of your plan.
1: Yeah. Unlike the, unlike the first two we talked about, you're not sort of invalidating half of your opponent's deck or, you know, five, six of your opponent's deck in something like a graveyard strategy. So like Dave said, this is kind of the other category, which is part of an engine, part of a singular strategy, part of a very narrow strategy that has
3: more and more payoffs as the modern format gets larger and larger. Finally, the best, the greatest, the reddest. Once again, my beloved, Leiland of Combustion. So
2: Krakatoa! Zach, how excited are you to have 15 unfettered minutes to talk about Leyland of Combustion?
3: We'll see if I use them all or if I give some to charity for attacks write off. Right. So Leyland of Combustion, two of any color and two red. Whenever you and or at least one permanent you control becomes a target of a spell or ability in opponent controls, Leyland of Combustion deals two damage to that player. So we talked about this in the episode uh, right after Denver. We've been talking about it really it feels like ever since. I love this card. So it's the new red ley line from M20. And in classic red fashion, it doesn't shut down strategies the way white or black does for the ley lines, but instead it just punishes your opponent for playing the game of magic. That is casting spells that target. So it's really similar to, I think the green ley line in that you're not going to put this in any red deck, right? I I don't think that any deck that has red can make use of this. I think it takes a certain strategy. So, for example, even though this does damage to an opponent, which is, quote-unquote, a burn thing, I don't think burn exactly wants this card right now. So, I'm going to break down why I think burn doesn't want it in a second, but decks that do want this card, I think decks that want this card are decks that typically struggle with interaction, especially early game and mid game, if they're destroying creatures of yours, if they're interacting with your hand. So, decks like jund mardu burn storm and phoenix are all going to you know heavily interact with you so if those are matchups you struggle with or matchups that you have an issue with in your red consider bringing this in especially jund if you know sometimes you fetch and shock and thought seize and then they go to 13 for doing that and sometimes they just have to right so what are specific decks that this shines in so mono red prison obviously we talked about that a little bit that's a deck that struggles with end of the battlefield effects and the prison pieces are pretty fragile open to destruction So if you can punish your opponent for trying to break your lock, that's a place you want to be in. I think Phoenix, personally, all the variants, Gruul, Izzet, Monored, Moist, Jund, whatever comes up in the coming days. I think that Phoenix decks are not a fan of Interaction as well. Destroying a thing in the ice, blowing up a Pyramus Ascension, Aria Flame, that's bad news, right? And also these decks are capable of dealing quite a bit of damage already. So being able to ping your opponent for four or six while trying to interact with you could be the difference between, you know, losing at two and winning with them dead.
1: Yeah, this is one of those areas, though, Zach, where I think back to what Dave said earlier, right? Is like what can make this worth the card or potentially right. four cards in your sideboard, right? And I think that this, more than perhaps any of the other ones, is one of the ones that's on the bubble for me, not as a modern playable card, but really what decks you're going to want to play this in, how many, you know, how much you want to rely on mulliganing to that. You know, it's, 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 it's really a more interesting one. And I'm glad that it is because so many of the other ones are, are not, they're not this nuanced.
3: No, I totally agree. And I think that's why I'm such a fan of this card for a big reason, is that it's not just an auto-included bunch of red decks. You really have to think about your strategy and where this fits in and if you're going to be rewarded for it. So honestly, I ran Scred the other day in my LGS, and I didn't put this in the side, just because I was running fewer creatures than normal and like not as many lock pieces. So I thought that I had better uses for those slots. And I love this card once again, but I thought in a prison versus mid strategy, I'd rather have it in the prison.
1: Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned Early on, when you were super hyped about this card, you were like, well, what if I get, you know, Inquisition or Thoughtseize? And it's like, well, I don't know if that's worth a card, Zach, just against the hand disruption. You know, it's r- really, if you have some creatures that you want to get repeated damage in, if you lose that damage, it's going to cost you. So you want to have some way to mitigate that loss so I can see where this ley line comes into play there.
3: Right. And that's why I think it's also good this is more of a speculative take, but I think it might be good in these goblins list that people are brewing the black red ones, just because you have so many targets that get removed that, like you said, sometimes, you know, if they're removing your t- couple targets, they're going to win the game at two life because they stabilized. This helps mitigate that stabilization a little bit. And then moving on to my earlier point, why not to include this in burn? So it seems sort of like an inclusion that go right in, you know, Burn has things that get targeted. Thought C is, is an Inquisition are always oh, not great, but Burn doesn't want to see them all the time, right? But I think a big reason why Burn doesn't want this is they only run, currently, 12 non-land permanents. And that's four Goblin Guide, four Swift Spear, four Idolon. So that's only 12 possible triggers you have off this, mm-hmm. aside from discard. And not every deck's running discard. You're more likely to see spot removal than you are discard.
2: Yeah, or it Burn targeting you.
3: Even then, I guess this gets to the point of whether or not it's card advantage, where what do you need from this card for it to be worth the inclusion in your sideboard? And I honestly think you need to expect to get three triggers out of this for it to be worth it for me. And that's a pretty high demand, quite honestly, and a lot of decks aren't going to get that. And I don't know if four damage is worth an inclusion, because there are other cards that deal four damage that don't have all these hoops to jump through. Yeah. So you can cast Burrows Charm, there are two mana, Right, and wait for four damage. You can cast exquisite firecraft, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you're looking for this effect, you want to punish an opponent for messing with you, as opposed to just getting in uh, damage.
2: Yeah, I mean that's why it makes just such, so much sense in mono red prison, right? Because you have so many pieces there that someone wants to try to get rid of, or wants to try to interact with, and then you have a couple of creatures, and so yeah, everything just kind of adds up to well, every time you try to do anything to me. You take some damage, and that that makes a ton of sense. Exactly, and typically
3: the deck has also struggled with enter the battlefield effects, shaman of the pack, lava belly sliver, other things like that that can get around the lock. Mm-hmm. So being able to punish your opponent for you know either destroying or trying to go over or under is good. So once again, I think that's why it's good in, in a stormer phoenix deck where you have these powerful enchantments that are you know in Aria flame, and it's very good against that card. Cool,
0: I love it, Zach. Your enthusiasm for the card and inspired me to get a playset because I'm convinced they're going to go up in value one day. Still waiting but anything is possible. I've been getting foils con, to really ensure that once the spike happens, I can cash in.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? If it only gets printed once, about five years from now it's going to go and the, there's going to be a meta where it's supposed to be there and then you're going to be laughing.
3: All the way to the bank, baby. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so Stan, obviously I've been singing this card's praises for over a month now at this point how do you feel about my take on this in phoenix do you think it's viable in there i know you own them but i don't know if you've actually cast them
0: no i haven't i've sleeved them up but i haven't actually put them in a deck i was thinking about it in mono red phoenix and talking to a lot of people to see what they thought of the idea because i think that's a deck that's really vulnerable to losing its creatures so something like mid-range that can pick apart your hand and kill off your creatures can sometimes be a tough matchup. Uh, sometimes you're just faster and they're doing enough damage to themselves where it doesn't matter. But um, the problem for me was that I couldn't figure out what to take out and I felt like other effects might be more valuable. So like as a burn player, I'm more concerned with my opponent gaining life than mm-hmm. perhaps mm-hmm. my opponent targeting me. Um, I think that the decks that this card is designed to beat um, might already be okay matchups with the sideboard options that a deck like Mono Red Phoenix has. For instance, like, I really like this card against Aria Flame. And the decks that play Aria Flame are Storm and Is It Phoenix. And for Mono Red, at least, like, those are not bad matchups. For Storm, like, Dragon's Claw does the job. Like, I'd rather be gaining that life than pinging that. Yes, for exactly. more life. Yeah,
2: yeah, I I play. I actually played Dragon's Claw against Storm a couple of days ago with Modern Red Phoenix, and I think I got up to like thirty life. Like they just kept going and going with their engine, and they just couldn't, they just couldn't kill me. Like, and I don't think that would have happened if I had had this instead. It, it would not have killed them in exchange if I had had this instead.
3: So before we move on, maybe to the wind down and we talk about our final thoughts on this, is what I'm hearing that you guys think this might only be good in prison, and that's maybe why I like it
2: so much. <laughs> I would not say that it's only good in this prison deck. I think it's possible (laughs) that it's, it's possible. It's possible that any, yeah, any deck that tries to fill the board with a ton of permanence might be able to make use of, of this deck, um, and it would have to be things that aren't susceptible to sweepers. So it would have to be stuff where someone's going to be like, hey, I'm going to destroy a bunch of your artifacts or something like that. So maybe if there was like a were prisony prison-y kind of thing where it was like, hey, don't mess with my ensnaring. It's almost like this card goes with Ensnaring Bridge and Chalice of the Void. <laughs> you know what I mean? And mm. it's like whatever build that is, this is something you want to have around if you have those cards, whether it's mono red or something else.
3: We're going to call it Butterfinger Prison because you better not lay a finger on it. Yeah, I
2: like that.
0: Zach, also to answer your question, I can see this popping up as just clever technology that a field might not expect in a certain meta. So if you're in an LGS with a lot of Storm and mid-range players, maybe that's a situation where you can get more mileage out of a card like this. Absolutely. We haven't noted this.
3: It's very, very, very good for Storm because every copy of Greed Shot dings them for two.
2: Yeah, I think this card is great, totally playable, good to have around, the number of decks that might actually benefit from it might be small, but it's important. Small but mighty decks.
1: Yeah, I would say grab both of the last two we talked about. You can afford under two bucks for Leyland of Abundance. I don't really know what combustion's price is right now, but you know it goes under a dollar last
3: time I saw. Yeah, no, it's under a dollar. I I have I definitely did not buy five hundred copies that I need to move real quick for my girlfriend gets home tomorrow, (laughs) but I do need to move these for she gets home tomorrow.
2: I've made a huge mistake.
0: So those are the Ley Lines of Magic, the Turn Zero Effect du Jour. This was a fun experiment, you guys. It was different from what we've done in the past where we look at a single card or a single deck, but here we got to explore an entire cycle and really analyze like modern and magic and the format that we're in right now and see how like an entire group of cards can impact that. So hopefully we can do more modern dives in the future. If there's a cycle of cards that you think would be worth a dive on our podcast shoot us a tweet
2: if there is one thing you remember from this discussion about ley lines remember that you are 40% to draw it if you keep 7 60% to draw it if you keep 6 80% to draw it if you keep 5 that's it 40 60 80 okay that's that's the big ta- that's a big takeaway that i think you could put those are words that you can put to work every day Thank
0: you, Dave. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to wind down by checking in with the Ha Ha Boys and talk a little bit about what we've been playing in modern. Stay with us. So Shane, you did a league today with Burn. Is that really most of what you've been playing lately? What inspired you to try burn after all these years? I haven't seen you cast a lightning bolt in 35 years.
1: I'm going back to that that burn well, that flamey hot well of burn. And I mean I just wanted to I wanted to check it out because it's been doing pretty well lately. Um, I did play a little bit of Mono Red Phoenix at the GP. I didn't love it. I just wanted to have more reach than to be stymied on the ground i know it's like it's a different worry altogether right to like not be able to win on the ground versus not to be able to win from burn spells in your hand but i just seemed really well suited to combat hogak right now um and one of the things i liked about it is it just it just seemed really good i went for one of course this is you know that's just luck but i did play hogak twice right and it seemed really effective against hogak so you know, if your LGS isn't one where Hogak's taken over or something like that, which I imagine is most LGSs, but if you play online, then I think that Burn's going to be a pretty effective deck right now. I think it's fast enough to handle Tron. and has tools to fight against decks like Humans with, like, the Searing Blazes, some sideboard Path to Exile, some sideboard Searing Bloods. Um, it can punish the painful mana base and general lack of speed from a deck like John. It can go under blue-white control. I think you're going to have a risky matchup against Dredge, but I think Dredge is a little bit outmoded right now with uh, Hogak around, and I say that because of the Creeping Chill, kind of free life gain that it gets. And Eldrazi Tron can be an issue with the main deck Chalice of the Void. So those are kind of, I think, some of the more popular decks you're going to see, especially online right now, and I think that Burn has a pretty solid matchup against a lot of them. Um, So yeah, I mean, besides that, I've been playing a little bit of devoted carnbow. I don't think that it's getting to the point quickly enough. I, I, I think that it might spin its wheels a little bit too much and kind of sort of try to be a mid range deck that's capitalizing on Teferi and, and Karn the great creator. But I think that I, what I want to try next in a league sometime this week is probably like one of the more all in combo variants that has like incubation and congruity, court of calling illa Damry's call postmortem lunge to kind of combat the ton of removal we're seeing right now and just tries to get to the combo more effectively than sort of try to be a teferi karn value deck so that's kind of what i'm playing right now is is those two decks i think that i'm gonna run burn back because it's fast and i think it's it's efficient and i think i can get another three two or four one or even a five oh with it
0: the four of you know as well as anyone, I love jumping around decks. Uh, Mana Traders helps with that a lot. But even when I was just playing with paper, I would like jump around decks pretty frequently. So the ones I've been working on the most lately is Mono Red Phoenix. Uh, of the decks I own in paper, I really feel like this is my most competitive deck right now. So even if I'm not playing it the most often, I feel like it's important for me to kind of just stay abreast on where the deck is at and its, and its plan so I can be good with it if and when I want to take it to a tournament. Um, I did play a little bit of Is It Phoenix even after our conversation with Ross, just to kind of like put our discussion to the test. And I've been really struggling with that deck, kind of seeing the fruition of Ross's assessment that Is It Phoenix is really poorly positioned right now. So I'm more or less taking that apart for the time being, at least until Hogak leaves. I also did a, a league over the weekend that I streamed with the uh, Blue Red Rhinos using Electro Dominance and told to cast Crashing Footfalls in a deck with no green sources. <laughs> so that was really fun. It was a fun experiment, thanks to Mana Traders. Um, I don't know if I'm going to buy that deck in paper. It seemed a little dirtily. I'm sure it'll be a great FNM deck for some people. It's not as proactive as I'd like to be, especially where modern is these days. But I think that's a deck that has potential to be tweaked into something more consistent. Um, I mean, Dave, you were on that stream with me, or at least in the chat. So I I think you kind of saw that there are some hands where like you just kind of can't do anything. And all you're really trying to do is draw cards until you find either your payoff or your enabler. And if you don't have one of those two pieces, you're kind of out of luck.
2: It's kind of that old classic magic problem, the two-card combo that everybody wants to be good, and it's like some of them make it, and some of them don't have enough draw spells or specific enough draw spells to be able to get the pieces together enough.
0: Though you only have to make a couple of rhinos one time to see how potent Crashing Footfalls really is. I, like I was really impressed with what that card could do, and very often I would make the rhinos swing with a Dreadhorde Arcanist to make two more rhinos, Right, uh, and that felt insane. Yeah, and the last one that I've been kind of poking around with still is Black Red Skelemental, just because it's like my fun deck of choice. I still really like it. I think it's really fun. I played a game with it on MTGO right before we started the podcast. (laughs) So that's where I'm at. I still like playing Lightning Bolt decks, and uh, I think I'll continue to do that forever.
2: (laughs) So speaking of Lightning Bolt decks... I've been playing a lot of red still. And, um, you know, I've talked recently a lot about playing Mono Red Phoenix. I also did recently took the Mono Red Prowess deck, the phoenix list Prowess deck through a league. Um, And that was really interesting to spend a little bit of time with the deck that Ryan Overturf did well with this weekend. I I actually played the deck that he posted on Star City Games last week, the exact 75. Um, Kind of felt like it was... Wasn't more consistent, but was still less explosive than Is It Phoenix. I really was missing some of the draws where I could suddenly get two Phoenix in the bin and be doing an extra six out of nowhere. You know, the this mono-red prowess deck is built around playing um, four Bedlam Revelers, and that was just like the pits. It just seems like that where- can't be right it's I, I don't rumors. know i don't know how it works well i had so many times where i had two of them in my hand at the same time and that always just feels so bad cuz you're just discarding one to cast the other
0: i wonder if something we saw over the weekend was something that ross kind of alluded to last week in our conversation where when an expert player pilots a suboptimal deck they can still do really well with it so i'm not suggesting that ryan overturf's deck isn't as good as the phoenix version but I kind of had the same reaction when I saw the list. Like four Bedlam Reveler seems insane when I found that like sometimes two Bedlam Reveler was too much.
2: Yeah. I, I totally agree. And so I quickly went back to Mono-red Phoenix after that and had was reminded immediately of how powerful it could be. So I got a I got a four one recently with mono Red Phoenix and it did things like I killed Hogak on turn two in game one which was kind of wild, but they took so much damage that I just did 14 to them on turn two, and that was it. Um, I managed to outgrind Storm using Dragon Claw in one game, and then in a second game, managed to survive them casting Empty the Warrens twice somehow by having them... Attack aggressively into me, and then I crack. I stabilized at one and cracked back for like fourteen damage on turn six or something like that, out of nowhere, you know, by drawing an opportune number of phoenixes and swift spears and things like that. So I really think that that deck is the one that I that I'm going to be keeping with for a while. I did t- do one league with uh, Mardu uh, Mardu Death Shadow after being inspired by at uh, Rapacious One on Twitter. He won an MCQ recently with with Mardu Shadow. And it's cool deck. It's still a hard deck to play. I made so many mistakes in different ways. Unforced errors, as some people have started to talk about recently, which I think is a great concept that's worth checking out.
0: Shout out uh, to Grindcast
2: for, I think, coining that phrase. I, I love it. It's perfect. Yeah. So, you know, there's things that you can do where you don't fetch right or you don't you know, you don't bolt the right thing and all kinds of stuff that happens. Well, there's no bolts in Marty Shadows, sorry. You know, but you just make these tiny decisions wrong and then it has huge implications and Shadow is just the deck that does that the most other than maybe blue-white control. So I liked the deck. I thought it was cool. Hexpire Sight is amazing. In the deck, it makes you be able to control how big your shadows are and that's an incredible kind of safety valve for Shadow that hasn't been there before. So I would give that a shot, but I, I think I'm going to be Phoenixing for a while still. Just saying this is American life, act one.
3: I can't get no Scredisfaction. So I've been playing a little bit of Scred lately for the past week. And I've been having fun. I walked away from the prison. I left the keys in the door. You know. <laughs> so you can get back off. in
2: whenever you want.
3: Right. Well, I'm the warden. So I kinda own the prison, the whole idea. So anyway, I've been playing Scred lately. And I've been having fun with it. I haven't been doing too hot with it, but I've been having fun with it. So the deck uh, list has really changed since I put it down to pick up Prison. So it's pretty stable to have Karn, Sign of Urza in the deck, as well as Karn, Great Creator. Uh, the deck is also running Seasoned Pyromancer and Frostwalk Bastion, as well as Arkham's Astrolabe. So you're actually up to 16 one-drops main deck right now. So hope you do not see any chalices.
2: Set all of modern.
3: Yeah, but because of that, Karn, Sign of Urza is able to downtick and create some pretty big Karn structs. So there's a world where you can get him out on turn three downtick and have a four, four or five, five, and then just keep going up from there. So that was fun. The artifact strategy was fun. I loved season pyromancer to ditch redundant blood moons, to ditch anger of the gods and it wasn't good, etc. But what I didn't love about the deck is casting blood moons on turn three. And I mentioned before how I think blood moons only really good when you're fast. And I feel like I had to reprove that to myself. And I just did over and over again. Because there are so many matches where my opponent would lead with fetch into fetch and then just have the two basics they needed. And it slowed them down, but it wasn't enough to actually gain tempo and win. So I missed my early turn one, turn two Blood Moons very deeply. And I was playing three Blood Moons my main initially, and I went down to two. And I think if you're a mid-range grindy deck, that's maybe where you want to be. And you can have the third one on the side if you need it. But... Blood Moon is just not as good as it once was playing on turn three naturally. And, of course, there are some decks that only run a couple basics. But for the most part, and I feel like especially because of Ren and Six and some other cards, basics are a lot more prevalent. So, I want to go back to Prison. I miss it. I like the consistency of it. no one ever? (laughs) I like the Prison Archetype in Richard Garfield's Magic the Gathering modern format.
2: (laughs) That's the official name. Yes. Please don't sue (laughs)
3: us. So that all being said, I do think Scred is maybe at the most viable it's ever been. And that's just because of all the power it's got recently. Like Season Pyromancer is a very, very powerful card in here. Like I said, being able to ditch redundant uh, either damage spells or lock pieces or even Relic Progenitus, it's kind of good because then you are able to get the tokens and etc. The current wishboard also a very powerful plan B. It's slower in here because you're using Mana Rocks to ramp. But overall, I feel like the deck is... Still probably tier three, tier two best case scenario, but totally FNM viable. And if you have the cards, I think now's a good time to bring it back out.
0: So there you have it. That's what we're doing in MTG. We're people too. We love playing the game. And yes, we also talk about it professionally once a week for an hour or two on a Monday night.
2: This is professional now? That's a that's a uh, generous is, term. Yeah.
3: This is it's above beer league, but it's like not. A minor league i guess i am the only one wearing a tuxedo
1: yeah i keep wondering why, why do you keep showing up in that it's so weird
0: so that wraps up this week's show i think this is a good time to warn our loyal listeners that i'm gone next week listen if you haven't yet make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as it comes out and if you use apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review if you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive Down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. If you'd like to support the show, please join our Patreon. Joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. We love interacting with our listeners, friends, and fans. So check that out at patreon.com slash thedivedown. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and... Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. It
3: turns your reaction before you draw.
0: Shane, I thought it was really interesting to hear you suggest that burn is fast enough for Tron. I've never, she'd never heard anyone say that before.
1: What mm. are you lying to mm. me? Are you being sarcastic? <laughs>
0: I'm lying, He's dude. pulling your leg. I'm, lying. I'm crossing my fingers when I say that. Right behind his head.